Good morning. Let's go ahead and find our seats. <clears throat> All right. All right, let's get going here. Um, good morning. Uh, I just think God is hilarious. He is. He's, he's got a good sense of humor. Because um, I was almost too sick to preach a sermon about sickness. Isn't that funny? God is just hilarious. He's just like, here's a little lesson for you before you try and teach other people. I mean, obviously my sickness is nothing compared to some things that y'all have gone through. But go ahead and pull out your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 102. And if you didn't bring a Bible, uh, there should be one around you. It's on page 501 uh, on the Pew Bible. So we're in the middle of a sermon series here during Lent, uh, which is the five or so weeks leading up to Easter. And the series we're calling Ugg Prayers. And uh, we're learning how to lament. And we're doing it with the Psalms. So we're looking at five different Psalms over the course of five weeks, looking at five reasons why we might have to lament. And most of the Psalms of lament are dealing with various aspects of broken relationships. So last week we looked at enemies, which is basically how we can lament when other people cause us harm, when other people hurt us. In a few weeks, we're going to look at lamenting our own sin through Psalm 51. And that's, that's you know, how to lament when we hurt others or when we break trust with God. In the final week, we're going to look at Psalm 88, which is the only psalm that does not turn to praise by the end. Uh, and we're going to look at how to lament when it seems like God has forsaken us. And so all these are having to do with broken relationships. But for the next two weeks, we're going to look at how to lament broken bodies, how to lament broken spirit, broken mind, how to lament the frailty of our own bodies, how to lament mortality, so today we're looking at how to lament when we come face to face with the fact that these bodies are mortal. They're not invincible. Next week we'll look at how to grieve mental illness, anxiety, depression, things like that. And of course these two categories, physical suffering and mental suffering, they overlap, of course. But whether we get a terminal illness and, and our lives are cut short like the psalmist seems to be alluding to in Psalm 102. Or we live to a ripe old age of 98 and, and we are surrounded by loved ones at our end. At, at some point, sooner or later, we will have to face the fact that we are not invincible. That our bodies are not immortal. 
And so because of the brokenness of the world, through sin, none of us is immune to physical illness, pain, suffering. So how do we approach God when our bodies turn against us? How is physical pain and suffering supposed to collide with our faith in a good God who has rescued us by his grace and promises a new body in a new kingdom yet to be fully realized? What do we do with this already not yet reality of physical suffering? So Psalm 102, it's 28 verses compared to last week's Psalm 13 of six verses. It's instructive. And it's, it's not just instructive in the fact that it's clearly about physical suffering. It's instructive with the structure, with how much space he gives to his lament of his pain, yes, but how much more space he gives to reflecting on the nature of God. And so let's go ahead and look at it. And we're going to read from the beginning, which is including the subheading, which I'm guessing most of your Bibles include. But go ahead and look at Psalm 102. It says, A prayer of one afflicted, when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord that he looked down from his holy height. From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord 
and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. O my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this psalm. I thank you for it and its place in your word. God, we want to humbly place ourselves, as was prayed earlier, under your word. We want to learn from your word. We want to be changed by your word. Holy Spirit, please speak your words to us and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So starting off the bat in that with that subheading, it's, it's pretty clear what this psalm is about. You know, and it's rare in the psalms for the subheading. There's lots of subheadings, but it's rare for them to, to describe the psalmist's inner thoughts and what's going on deep within like this. A lot of them say of David, of Solomon, of Asaph, of the sons of Korah, or uh, it's a miktam. It should be written to the shugaleth and played with a lyre. Stuff like that. And that's normal. And even, you know, this is of David while he's on the run from this person or that person. While he's scared, he's in a cave. But this is rare where we get to see exactly what is going on in the psalmist's heart. The Christian Standard Bible words it like this. It says, a prayer of a suffering person who is weak and pours out his lament before the Lord. Now, before we dive into the psalm itself, we can be discipled by this subheading. Notice it says, the prayer of one afflicted, the prayer of a suffering person who is faint, who is weak. Have you ever been in this situation where you're not just in a season of suffering, but within that season, you're at a low point. Within that season of suffering, you're weak, you're faint. Maybe, maybe during that season, you've had points where you're like, okay, I can do this, I'm okay, the Lord's got me, but, but here he is in a season of affliction, in a season of suffering, and he's weak. He's not doing well. And that's when he pours out his lament before the Lord. I think the miracle of this psalm is that it exists. That even at this point, he prays. When I'm sick, I'll be honest, I don't feel like praying. I feel like sleeping. I feel like playing video games, sleeping, watching something, sleeping. I just want to tune out. But it's when this psalmist hits rock bottom, 
When his, as it says in verse 3, his bones burn like a furnace that he pours out his complaint, his lament before God. It's amazing. And last week we looked at the five stages of lament. And just for review, I'll mention the five here. Usually they include these five. An address. Who's the psalmist lamenting to? A lament is not just a a monologue. It's something spoken to someone else. The complaint. Complaint is the complaint. It's pretty self-explanatory. What do you not like about what's going on in your life? The request. What do you want God to change about your circumstances? How do you want him to, to help? Do you want him just to listen to your prayer or do you want him to act and change your circumstances? And then fourthly, the motivation. And this is, this is the basis for your request. God, you're a God of steadfast love, right? Okay, do something. That's the motivation. And finally, the confidence. As we've said before, every psalm of lament, save one, turns to a, a like Andy was saying earlier, a speaking that second truth. Yeah, sure, the first truth is what's going on in your heart. The second truth is what does God say about himself? And how can you cling to that? And remember, these stages of lament, these, these steps even, are not a checklist, but they can be helpful as we pray. And this lament, Psalm 102, it contains each of these five stages. But unlike Psalm 13, which basically, basically goes steps one through five, in verses 1 through 6, easily traceable. This psalm, the stages overlap. It's hard to distinguish the the request from the confidence, from the complaint, from the address. They're all sort of flowing together. And that's understandable considering the amount of physical pain this person is in. And so for us today, we'll use the structure of the psalm to walk through versus each stage of the lament. And just like this subheading was instructive, the structure of this psalm is instructive. It starts out small, verses 1 and 2. It's just an intro. It's just a a quick, hear my prayer, O Lord. Do not hide your face from me. Let me just start off by saying, God, look at me and listen to me, please. And then he moves on to, to his complaint in verses 3 through 11, and it's a doozy. He lays out the extremity of physical pain and suffering that he's dealing with. So we have an intro, we have a, a long and, and very specific complaint. And then finally, for the whole second half of the psalm, we have reflections on the nature of God that are full of confidence They're full of requests. They're full of motivation on God's character. And what's instructive is that his reflections on God get twice the amount of space as his complaint. Even though his complaint is is super intense and super forward and even bold, his reflections on God and the nature of God go on and on and on. So what the psalmist teaches us in this, even the structure of this psalm, is that 
in experiencing the worst parts of mortality. It's possible for our priorities to shift to something that transcends mortality or someone that transcends mortality. And for the psalmist, that person happens to both transcend mortality and yet doesn't leave humanity behind. That yes, he, he is enthroned forever. Yes, his years have no end, and yet he interacts with those of us whose years end, with the human race who withers away like grass. So let's take a look at this psalm in each of these three sections. Starting with the intro, verses 1 and 2, he says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. So once again, just like last week, the address is short and sweet. O Lord. He repeats it again. O Lord in verse 12. And he switches to O my God in verse 24. O Lord is Yahweh, the personal name of God. And in verse 24, he clings to that personal nature when he says, it's my God that I'm calling to. And yet it's short and sweet. By this point, he's already started his request in verse 1. Hear my prayer. I want you to listen to me. So first and foremost, he wants God to hear his prayer. But more than that, he urges God to answer him. He says, answer me speedily in the day when I call. And we see once again that more than one category of lament is at play here. We see elements of forsakenness. That God, it seems as if he's turned his face from the psalmist. We see elements of anxiety. The day of my distress. And then we even see enemies in verse 8. The primary lament, however, is over physical suffering. And that's what he's going to spend his entire complaint complaining about. But this is a good reminder that the psalms of lament aren't nice and neat and easily categorizable. Just like life. Life is not nice and neat and easily categorizable. Right? When you encounter physical suffering, it's not in a vacuum. You don't get to push pause on the the mental stress that comes along with that, or the relational tensions that arise from it, you got to deal with all of it at once. God knows that. He doesn't need us to pray perfectly in order for us, or for, for him to hear us. And many of us struggle with lament. Many of us struggle with bringing ourselves to God in times of suffering because we don't want to disrespect God. Now, I want to suggest that this tendency is misguided. It results from a shallow understanding of our intimacy with him, not a deeper respect for him. Now, most of you are super polite with someone you just met, right? You're nice to them. You just met them. Why wouldn't you be? Do you retain that level of politeness 
if 20 years later that stranger happens to be your husband or your wife or a close friend, do you retain that level of, of kind of, hi, how are you doing? Awesome. No. You let your hair down with them. You're real with them. You call them out when they hurt your feelings. You let them know how you really feel. So when I tell Anna, my wife, who looks like me right now, uh, we, we literally dress the same today on accident. That's how you can tell. It's her. I think she's out there. But when I tell her how I really feel, does that mean I love her any less? No. It's because of our intimate relationship that I'm able to and even should speak my mind, speak my heart, pour out my heart before her. Maybe we're missing an important part of what it means to know God intimately when we are afraid to tell him how we really feel about our circumstances. When we're afraid that we'll step on his toes. Hey God, sorry, I, I don't want to offend you. I just want to tell you that I'm not really, I'm sorry. No, just lay it out. He doesn't want you to walk on eggshells around him. There's a reason that there's exclamation points at the end of every sentence in verse 1 and 2. Of course, the exclamation points aren't Hebrew, but it's getting that point across. This is an urgency. The psalmist is crying out to God. He doesn't walk on eggshells with God. And if I'm offending you, I want you to remember, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of the living God, who's been preexistent before the foundation of the world, when he took on flesh, lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve right beforehand, he hung on a cross and he cried out the words of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Read that psalm. It's one of the most intense psalms of lament of God forsaking humanity in the entire Bible. Jesus prayed it. If Jesus, the intimate Son of God, can scream out in honest vulnerability, my God, why? Why? You can too. And it's because of Christ that we can now boldly enter the throne room of grace and obtain help in our time of need. And as we'll see, being forward with God like this, it doesn't lead to a a deconstruction of our faith or a, a disrespecting of God. For this psalmist, it leads to a deeper faith. Like we saw last week, this confidence that we often arrive at comes through lament. Through it. When we go on a bear hunt, we can't go under it. We can't go over it. We have to go through the squelchy mud the whooshing storm, the swishy grass, and all the other things. It leads to a deeper faith in God that isn't limited by mortality. 
So he, he starts out with his intro in verses 1 and 2, and he moves on to his lament for physical suffering. In verse 3, he says, For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. And so the psalmist launches into his complaint in these verses. Man, is it intense. There's uncontrolled pain. There's loss of appetite. There's malnourishment. Those of us who are in the medical community call this failure to thrive. Emaciation. There's the loneliness that comes from intense suffering. Insomnia. There are people who look at you and now all you are to them is a curse word. Oh man, I hope what happened to him doesn't happen to me. People see you not as as a real person anymore, but as that person who's going through that thing. Yikes. You're not a friend anymore, you're a project. You're someone who needs a Caring Bridge website. Someone who all people want to hear from is how it's going with that thing that you're going through. That's lonely. And finally, in verse 10, we see the psalmist, after he's laid out his complaint of, of what he's feeling in his body, he points his finger at God. He says, all this is because of you, because of your indignation and anger. You've taken me up and thrown me down. That's quite the statement. So where does he land after all this? Where, where does all this complaining get him? To verse 11. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. So in verse 11, he begins to reflect on his mortality. The very next psalm in our Bible, Psalm 103, elaborates for us on that mortality. If you want to turn there, go ahead. Verse 14 through 16 of Psalm 103 says, For God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And its place knows it no more. Physical suffering interrupts our notions of invincibility. And it is just that. An interruption. When you encounter sickness, chronic disease, illness, suffering, it interrupts your life. It's not like you were just going, okay, I'm, I'm kind of like taking it easy right now. I'm waiting for the next thing. 
oh, it's sickness. Okay, I'm good. No, you're in the middle of life and it hits you and interrupts you. It disrupts your life. If it weren't for suffering, many of us, especially if there are any here who aren't Christians, many of us would be content to coast through life, to enjoy relationships, to enjoy pleasures, to enjoy work, to enjoy hobbies, and forget about God altogether. But suffering forces our hand. It doesn't force us to acknowledge and worship God, but it forces us to make a choice about God. I know many of my non-Christian coworkers, when they encounter suffering and disease, they do think about God. But usually the conclusion is, this is, this is a, either a distant God or a non-existent God. But suffering forces our hand. It forces us to make a choice. Who do we think God is? Who do we think God is for? What do we think are His purposes? We can either use suffering as an excuse to disbelieve in God or a reason to prioritize the God who transcends mortality. Suffering, I'll be honest, it is a problem for belief in God. It's a valuable thing to wrestle with. Christians, and then before Christians existed, the people of God have been wrestling with the problem of suffering since suffering existed. Read the book of Job. It's a problem. It's not an unsurmountable problem, And it's also a problem for other beliefs and worldviews. But it's a difficult problem. But no one expresses the problem of evil and suffering better than the psalmists. Look at verse 10. It's because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. But where does that lead him? He, He proclaims it's a problem. But where does that lead him? Does it lead him to agnosticism? Ah, I just don't know anymore if God is real, if God cares. Does it lead him to atheism or even to secular humanism or any other ism that seems to make better sense of his situation? No, it, it leads him into the final section of the psalm that gets twice the space. Reflections on an eternal, immortal, and transcendent God. And yet, a personal, compassionate, and condescending God. And I'm not saying condescending as in the the negative term. Don't be so condescending. The God who condescended, who was up here and came down to interact with the created order. And so that leads him into this next section, reflections on the transcendent yet condescendent one, starting in verse 12. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. 
For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord that he looked down. I love that. That he looked down from his holy height. From heaven, the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength in mid-course. He has shortened my days. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. So the psalmist, he finished his primary complaint and now he reverses course in confidence. But really, it's not a reversal, it's a continuation because he was reflecting on his own mortality. That's where he arrived after basically uh, doing head and shoulders, knees and toes to himself of inventory on pain. Where does that get him? It gets him to go, man, I'm just, I'm just like grass. I am limited. I am mortal. I am a vapor. Who's not like that? And so that leads him to reflect on someone who is immortal and and permanent in verse 12. When my non-Christian coworkers reflect on suffering and end up thinking about God and and asking those questions and arriving at at a pretty quick Ah, he's probably distant. Ah, he's probably non-existent. That brings us back to those basic questions of lament, which are these. God, where are you? Where are you or where were you? God, where are you? Where were you? And God, if you're a God of love, why would you let this happen? These are the basic questions of lament, and they're good questions. Ask them. But the psalmist here, in his reflections on his own suffering, instead of coming to view God as non-existent or or distant, he comes to view God as different. God is different than you. God is not immortal. Or sorry, God is not mortal. God is not a vapor that's going to go poof. He's permanent. He is other. You are mortal. You will only last a few years on this earth. He will last forever. He's different. That's where the psalmist goes in his reflection. The difference of God and us. Here I am, weak, about to go poof like the wind. 
Is there anyone in the world that won't happen to? The psalmist says yes. Now he's writing during a time clearly of personal suffering, but not just personal suffering. As we see, he's also suffering on behalf of God's people, Israel. He speaks of Zion in verse 13 as lying in a heap of stones and dust. And so he takes the opportunity to ask this transcendent God to condescend to save both his life and the life of the broken community that he's in. And he bases this request on the motivation of God's character in verse 17. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean your prayer is any less arriving at the throne of God. In fact, he regards it. He listens to it. Does not despise it. And then the psalmist is like, all right, does anyone have a pen? Because now I'm getting confident. He wants the community to be ready to document the prayers that God will answer for generations who have not yet been born. Verse 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Side note, that's us. That he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who are doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when the peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. Notice the plural, kingdoms. There's some, some flair, some flavor here of recognizing that it's not just the one kingdom of Israel that needs to be rescued. It's the kingdoms of the world that will look to Zion, God's holy mountain, and praise him. And then we see a recurrence of complaint. Because the psalmist is recognizing God as the transcendent one, God as the permanent one, he will come and touch the communities of men and women. But he's bummed because he's not going to see it. Verse 23, he's broken my strength in mid-course. He's shortened my days. And he, he throws up a last-ditch request. God, don't take me away in the middle of my days. Come on. I want to see your salvation. And many of us feel the same way when we encounter illness, suffering, chronic disease. Just like Paul, who was complaining of physical suffering, he said, Jesus, take this away from me. Take this away so I can do more for you. So I can build your kingdom better. And Jesus says, nuh-uh. You know why? Because my power is made perfect in your weakness. I will bring myself glory even if it means you lose some. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, this is the mindset that we begin to have when we truly value the glory of God over all things, even our own glory, even our own participation in the kingdom of God. We value his glory above our part to play. And this psalmist is like, I want in on the action, God. Why would you take me away when, when this hasn't come to full fruition yet? Come on. And yet he recognizes 
that the children of your servants shall dwell secure. In verse 28, their offspring shall be established before you. Even though this psalmist is saying goodbye to participation in this life, he knows God will not abandon his people. Wow. This psalm, it's beautiful. And one of the most beautiful parts is that God has accomplished everything that this psalmist was looking for. But he did it in a different way than the psalmist could have even imagined. Did he appear again in glory in Zion? Yes, he did. In Psalm 2, which talks about the Son of the eternal God. It says, where is it? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus Christ fulfilled this psalm. Did God look down from his holy height to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were doomed to die? Yes. We were imprisoned in our sin. We were doomed to judgment. And yet Jesus condescended to take on flesh himself and accomplish all that the psalmist wanted. And he was raised with a new body, the likes of which has never been seen before. And if we're in him, we will be raised with new bodies like his. The author of Hebrews opens up and just starts preaching about Jesus and how he's better than anybody else who has ever lived or will ever live. And he attributes, or he or she, we don't know the author of Hebrews, so it could be anyone. He attributes verses 25 through 27 to Jesus. Of Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Jesus is this God. He's the immortal, transcendent one. But what did he do with his immortality? What did he do with his transcendence? I'll tell you what he did. He dove headfirst into verses 3 through 11. Do you remember verses 3 through 11? Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. Everything hurts. My bones cling to my flesh. I'm lonely. I'm like, the, I'm an owl in the waste places, a bird on the housetop. I'm alone. I'm forsaken. I'm in pain. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Jesus took on these things. He took on uncontrolled pain. He took on emaciation. He took on loneliness. He took on immor- mortality. He clothed himself with vulnerability. 
The author of Hebrews also notes the posture of the most faithful of God's people, especially the ones who died before they had obtained the promises that God had spoken to them. In Hebrews 11, it says, All of these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Have you acknowledged that you're a stranger and an exile on the earth? Physical suffering reminds us of the brokenness of the world, that things are not as they should be. When we face physical pain and suffering, we come to yet another fork in the road. We can either lament in God's direction, as in bring all of ourselves to him, our complaints, our pain, our sorrow, all of it. Or we can get lost in our suffering. We can allow it to transform us away from him. Suffering is powerful. Suffering does stuff. doesn't matter who you are. It will change you. But the, this is one argument for the sovereignty of God. That God is powerful enough to use suffering in your life to do something that had you not experienced that suffering could never have happened. He can do something so good in your life through pain. That's the God that we worship. And the thing that he does through suffering just might last for eternity. That's our God. That's our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's worship him. Let's pray. Your Father, I, I don't know the extent of pain that is represented in this room. A lot of people have pain and, and they don't show it. But there's deep pain there. And so I just want to um, invite any who would like to receive prayer. Um, specifically and especially for physical pain. And we can pray just like the psalmist does here. We can pray for, for rescue. We can pray for relief. We can pray for God to not cut our days short, to, to rescue us speedily when we call. But we can also pray for strength. We can pray for perspective. We can pray for the eternal God to reign in our priorities. And so with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, if that's you today and you want to receive prayer uh, for both healing and recovery and restoration and also for strength and endurance, 
go ahead and slip up your hand and we'll, we'll pray for you especially today. All right. For the six of us in the room who raise their hand, um, let's, let's go ahead and pray for them. Dear Father, we lift these brothers and sisters up to you. You know their pain, whether it's been going on for, for days, hours, and minutes, or, or weeks, months, and years, and decades. Lord, as the psalm here displays, we don't always see the end of our pain in this life. So we know that that pain is a reality. That pain is a reminder. That pain is a disruption. It's an interruption. And yet we know that you are powerful. And when you came, Jesus, you touched the lame, the sick, the mute, the blind, those who were in pain. And there were some that you didn't touch. Lord, we don't know why you heal one and leave the other. But for those who raised their hand this morning, I want to lift them up to you and ask for healing. I pray that you would answer them speedily in the day when they call. I pray for relief even now in the name of Jesus. And Lord, in addition, out of the same gate, we, we also pray for strength. We pray for endurance, as I'm sure they've asked for many and many and many a time. But once again, we pray for strength, Lord. We pray that you would show them all of the beautiful things that you're teaching them, all the wonderful things you're doing in them through this pain. Thank you that that's the kind of a God we worship. Not a distant God who doesn't care, but a different God who then took on flesh. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to worship you with our lives. Amen. All right, we're going to worship a few more songs uh, this morning. And if you uh, are one of those people who raised your hand, or if you're anybody else who wants to receive prayer, come on down front. we got Isaac and Millie here uh, who's re- who are ready to pray for you. Um, if you want to give of your tithes or offerings, there's a box there. And then.